Stomberg. And I'm Lisa DeSimone. And this is Taxes for the Masses. Today's episode is on IRS funding. President Biden's Made in America tax plan aims to address corporate tax avoidance and evasion in two ways. First, by closing many of the current opportunities or so-called loopholes that large corporations use to lower their tax bills. Second, by investing in the IRS to ensure any large corporations that do push the envelope too far are held accountable. But legislative debates continue. In today's episode, we discuss the recent history of IRS funding and President Biden's hopes to arm the IRS with the resources it needs to take on aggressive corporate tax avoidance. Hello, B. Hello, Lisa. Today, we're talking about one of the most beloved institutions in America, the IRS. Oh, the IRS. They have such an important job to do, but let's face it, nobody really wants to interact with the IRS. Getting a letter from the IRS is basically the grown-up version of getting called into the principal's office. So have you ever had, I don't want to say a run-in because I don't want to make you sound like a felon or a fugitive. (laughs) So have you ever had a personal encounter with the IRS as an individual taxpayer? I have. And and it's my own fault because, as you know, I do my own taxes every year. And when I say I do my own taxes, I don't mean that I pay for one of those tax preparation software services that are out there. I mean, I personally fill out every line of the tax return myself. And I do that because I learn a lot in the process. But I also make mistakes. And it turns out IRS is not shy about telling me when I've mucked it up. How about you? Had any run-ins? So first, let me say, this is one of the things I love about you is how old school you are about the tax return process. Um, So that's fantastic. But yes, I also have gotten only two notices ever. And they were both my fault. And they were both just harebrained mistakes that I made. And it didn't, in neither case, did it change my tax due. It was like, I forgot to fill out a form or I forgot to attach some important document that I was supposed to attach. So as you know, I hate doing my taxes. And I'm pretty sure at one point in the PhD program, I somehow convinced you to do my taxes for me. I was at one point running a small tax prep business as a PhD student. So that that sounds like me. Yep. And, and shamefully, I was paying you with my husband's cooking, I think, because I had no other way to pay you. And to this day, that is the best I have ever been paid. So fortunately, we had we had a skill trade going on there. But um, so I hate doing my taxes. I do use TurboTax. But I think a lot of other people hate it because they don't have the tax knowledge that maybe you or I have. They don't, they definitely don't love taxes to the extent that you or I do. And they're just really afraid of like a negative consequence. I've had many a friend or student come to me in an absolute panic um, because it's exactly what you were saying. Their view of what's going to happen when the IRS tells them they did something, they, they made a mistake on the return, is the pilot for Schitt's Creek, right? It's the IRS is going to storm in and come claim all of your wigs and all of your jewelry and your house to boot. It's okay. We forgive you, Dan Levy. We still, we still love you. I think it's important to remember that many of those notifications that you might receive are just correcting little errors. They're computer generated. So it's not like there's an agent out there who has pulled up your picture and the Google satellite map of your house and is stalking you. And even if there is an IRS agent involved, believe it or not, they're human too. And you can have a conversation with them. And there are protests and appeals processes in place to help make sure that you have your rights represented and to help you get the right answer if you think the IRS has made a mistake. 
All right, so let's talk about how it started and how it's going for the IRS in terms of budget. Well, I think it's safe to say it's not currently going too well. According to the Green Book on the Made in America tax plan, the IRS operating budget fell 20% in real dollars from 2010 to 2020. And according to IRS data, their number of employees is down 22% over that same period. And their number of tax returns that are filed is up 10%. So put that all together and audits are down a whopping 87% over the same period. Yeah, so what you're looking at is basically the IRS having fewer resources and more to do over the past decade, and that's not a recipe for success, right? You mentioned the returns, and I I think that number is corporate returns. So corporate returns are up. I imagine individual returns are up as well, but it's not just returns. Like you were saying, the IRS does more than just collect and process returns. They also have this taxpayer assistance that they provide. And then on top of that, they administer a lot of social programs in the United States. So things like the Earned Income Tax Credit and the Affordable Care Act. And most recently, they were in charge of getting those stimulus payments out to all of the taxpayers who qualified. So they're doing a lot of stuff beyond just tax returns. And you've done some research in this area. Another big thing that they've been tasked with recently related to tax avoidance is trying to monitor U.S. taxpayers' foreign investments with FATCA. FATCA is a good one. It's the Foreign Account Tax Compliance Act. And if it sounds sort of like we're almost saying fat cat, that's not a coincidence. That's why they named the act that way. It was targeted at so-called fat cats who were hiding their income overseas so that the U.S. couldn't tax it and generated a whole lot of information about foreign accounts held by U.S. citizens to the IRS. But all of this new information that they're getting about U.S. citizens' foreign bank accounts mean nothing unless the IRS has the resources to sort through it all and figure out who to even audit. So I'm so happy that you made that point because I think there's a perception by a lot of people out there that the IRS isn't trying to do anything to crack down on high wealth tax avoidance or tax avoidance by corporations. I think there's sort of this misconception that they're just, you know, kind of sitting back, letting fat cats get away with anything. But you raise a really good point here. They've been trying. They've been trying over the last 10 years to increase disclosure, collect more information, not just about high wealth individuals, but also about corporations. But you hit the nail on the head. You can have all the paperwork in the world. And if you don't have anybody to sit there and sort through it and follow up on leads, you're not going to get anywhere. That's another point that I want to just keep emphasizing here. We can't blame the IRS for the tax law. That's not their fault. I know there have been some people who get confused and think that the IRS is the one who writes the laws. They don't. Yeah, one of those people who keeps getting confused happens to be a senator from the great state of Texas. He likes to call it the IRS tax code. Um, he should look up his job description. Yes, the point is, if you don't like the tax code, you don't get to take it out on the IRS. They are just enforcing what Congress creates. So in addition to creating the tax law, Congress also sets the IRS budget. And in recent history, they've been asking an already really efficient tax agency to do even more with fewer resources. So let's dig into that a little bit more. Why is it that Congress keeps cutting the IRS budget? So they said they were cutting the IRS budget to target the fact that the IRS was poor performing and inefficient. 
Um, but as you just kind of alluded to, that's that's kind of nonsense because the IRS has been objectively speaking, one of the most efficient agencies in the world. And this was something I didn't know until you and I and, and one of our colleagues, Brian Williams, started working on a paper trying to look at the effects of the enforcement budgets of tax authorities in, in countries all over the world. And the OECD publishes a statistic that shows how much the tax authority has to spend to collect $100 of tax revenue. And I personally was shocked to see that the IRS is always at the top of the list in terms of being most efficient. And they spend only between about 30 and 35 cents to collect $100 of revenue. And that is that makes them a leader in efficiency among OECD countries. So clearly these claims of inefficiency then weren't entirely truthful. Nope. You got to think that there's something else going on there. And there is some strong speculation, I would say, that these budget cuts, which started hot and heavy around 2010, were, you guessed it, politically motivated. There was some speculation that the IRS was selectively scrutinizing entities that were applying for tax-exempt status, that they were focusing more of their attention and sort of flagging for further review some of these entities that were associated with conservative political causes. And the Treasury Inspector General concluded that some IRS personnel were, in fact, using inappropriate criteria and that there were some inappropriate procedures targeted against some organizations based on their political leanings. And that's a violation of explicit IRS policy. So when these budget cuts started, some Republican lawmakers actually came out and were quite vocal in admitting that the budget cuts were payback for the fact that the IRS targeted groups for their political views. In 2011, right in the middle of all this controversy, former President Obama asked Congress to increase the IRS budget by a million dollars to give them an additional 5,100 agents and ensure things were working properly. Instead, Congress cut the budget by $300 million and offered buyouts to 5,400 workers. So basically exactly the opposite of what he wanted. Don't you just love bipartisanship? President Biden's plan aims to adjust discretionary spending for IRS enforcement and operations support by about $7 billion, and also to provide the IRS about $73 billion in mandatory funding over the next 10 years. So he's talking about $80 billion of additional funding over the next 10 years, a big chunk of which would be mandatory, meaning Congress couldn't fool with it. And the goal here is to allow the IRS to enhance its technology, which corporate taxpayers will tell you is totally lagging behind other developed countries and also to strengthen those taxpayer services that we talked about. The proposal also says it aims to target this increased funding towards high wealth taxpayers and away from households with less than $400,000 of income, which sounds pretty good, right? Sounds good. But another thing that I learned late in my life is that one of the hallmarks of an effective tax enforcement system is randomized audits. Because if everyone knows who's getting audited, it doesn't work, right? If I know that the professor isn't going to be monitoring the exam, I can go ahead and plan and cheat really effectively. So publicly stating that the IRS is going to start targeting incomes over $400,000, being so specific about that bright line again, it could backfire on them. Another related proposal in the plan would require financial institutions to report data to the IRS, including details on cash inflows and outflows, transfers to related accounts, and some details specific to crypto asset exchanges. So this reporting requirement would apply to all business and personal bank accounts with assets greater than $600. That's a pretty low threshold. I don't know about you, but this provision like really surprised me because in the U.S., I think we like our privacy a lot. 
I would be floored if this had any chance of passing in any kind of bill, because I think this is just antithetical to a lot of just fundamental privacy desires that we have in the U.S. I just cannot imagine having to turn over my entire bank statement of inflows and outflows to the IRS. Again, though, you have to bear in mind, all the disclosures in the world mean absolutely nothing if you don't have the resources to process them into something actionable that you can use for tax enforcement. So Lisa, before becoming a PhD student and a fabulous tax professor that you are right now, you were a transfer pricing manager in your former life, which meant you helped these big multinational corporations determine how to price the goods and services that they sold between their related entities. And this activity where multinationals are trying to historically get profits out of the U.S. into lower tax jurisdictions, one of the ways they can do that is by strategically setting their transfer prices. And because of that, this has been an area of potentially aggressive or harmful tax avoidance that the IRS has tried to crack down on over the years. So one of the comments in the Made in America tax plan overview is that right now, because of resource constraints, basically the IRS is focusing on, you know, quote unquote, easier issues and not really actively pursuing things that are complex. So first question for you is, did any of your clients have to deal with IRS audits while you were working and helping them with their transfer pricing? Absolutely. Transfer pricing audits pretty much happen all the time. We're always dealing with information requests from the IRS, which is kind of the first stage of their audits. Given the amount of information that we provided to the IRS, it just seemed unfair. A single report documenting a single transaction could be hundreds of pages. So just imagine the stack of reports the IRS would get if they came knocking on the door of one of our clients. So I worked for seven years you know, before getting my PhD, and I was massively involved in three audits. One company that um, I was involved in their audit, they claimed an R&D credit every year. And undoubtedly, they qualified for that credit. The challenge was how much of a credit were they entitled to? And so every year they engaged us to come out and do an R&D credit study. And we would spend 400, 500 hours interviewing engineers, reading through minutes of meetings, trying to decide how much of everybody's time was spent on qualified R&D so we could claim the credit. And the CFO used to give us a hard time about how much we would charge for this study. And every year we would deliver the study in binders. And they were these big, fancy, like five-inch three-ring binders. And we'd have like some cheesy science picture on the front of it. And he always used to give us a hard time. Like, oh, that's, that's a $25,000 binder. So they were audited and they flew in an R&D credit expert to audit this tax return, which meant we wheeled in a, two carts with 30 binders to support these three years worth of credits. And I wasn't there to see this, but what I was told was that this, this IRS agent opened the first binder, flipped through it for about 30 minutes, sat there in his chair for another 30 minutes making notes, and then left, and it was a zero adjustment audit. It's exactly the same story that you just told. That man sat there and thought, I can either spend my time going through 30 binders worth of documentation, or I can just give up and leave now. And that's exactly what he did. And it's, it's such a great story. But the economist in me can't help but point out that that's an efficient decision made by the IRS agent. That's how the IRS is top amongst all the other countries in the world in how they spend their resources and getting a return on investment 
is they don't go chasing these things down very, very long, expensive rabbit holes. I think they have good intentions about trying to focus on complex issues, but if they can spend five hours getting to some resolution on a relatively non-complex issue that gives them some bang for their buck, as opposed to thousands of hours on a really complex issue that's highly uncertain, yeah, I think in the end, they end up going after the higher return issues. A lot of times when we think about tax law and filling out your tax return, I think there's a a temptation to say that there's one right answer. You could give a corporate tax return to 10 different tax accountants and they will come up with 10 different numbers of taxes owed precisely because some of these things are very difficult to pin down. A great example is intellectual property, which by definition, its value lies in the fact that it's completely unique. And if that's true, how on earth are you supposed to try to come up with a market price for this thing that you're transferring between your related parties within a multinational group if nobody else has ever transferred it? There is no right answer. The best they can do is come up with a different answer that they argue that's right, but they don't have as much information about the market as the company that owns the intellectual property does. So there's a big information asymmetry problem underlying this as well. And that thing that you just hit on, the uncertainty, the information asymmetry, the fact that the tax authority is never going to know as much about the product as the business is, right? That is going to be true regardless of how well you fund the tax authority. So let's talk briefly about what we do know about tax authority resources and tax avoidance. B, you and I both have done some work in this area. What have we learned? Well, I think we've learned that when you give the tax authority more resources, it collects more tax. Mm. Not totally surprising. Uh, For example, I have a paper with Michelle Nessa, Casey Schwab, and Aaron Towery that estimates the IRS could have collected over $34 billion in additional revenue from audits just from large corporations if Congress had given it only another $13 billion of budget. That sounds like a pretty good trade-off. I would take that return. It's a 250% return, and that's just focusing on one segment of taxpayers, corporations, large corporations. If we had been able to include small businesses and individual taxpayers into our analysis, that return would be much higher. And that return is in line with some estimates out of the IRS. You hear a $4 to $1 return on investment thrown around, so it's nice to see some independent confirmation of those amounts. But also, your results showed some nuance. Yes, the IRS proposes fewer deficiencies when it's constrained, which is intuitive, but it also collects a larger portion of what it proposes when it's more constrained. That's right. And I think it's entirely consistent with what we've been discussing today on this podcast and with what President Biden's team highlights in the proposal. The IRS basically has to make a business decision when it has fewer resources. And that decision is to go after those areas of suspected noncompliance where it thinks it can get relatively easier wins, which means it may be shying away from some of the tougher and more complex, but maybe also larger dollar issues. And that's also consistent with some of the work you and I have done with Brian Williams, where we look at tax enforcement spending globally and find evidence that domestic companies, those with arguably less complex issues, at least compared to multinationals, they tend to get hurt more by increased enforcement spending by their own home country. And now for the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I'm so excited because I can actually come up with some good here. To quote Michael Scott from The Office, I think funding the IRS is a win-win-win, as far as I can tell, because it gives them the resources they need to make fair and accurate assessments 
to maintain taxpayers' trust, to protect government revenues, and more importantly, to make it a little bit less embarrassing to be a U.S. taxpayer. We can be proud of our tax authority and our tax enforcement agency and know that they're getting the resources that they need to do their job. Trust in tax enforcement is important because research shows that if taxpayers think tax enforcement is lax or if everyone else isn't paying what they owe, it actually encourages more tax fraud. The other reason I think this is a win-win-win is because, as we mentioned, the proposal would remove part of the IRS's budget from Congress's annual appropriation and make part of the funding more automatic. That's some of the mandatory funding that Biden's talking about. I like this because I think it's trying to depoliticize IRS funding as much as it can, and I think that that's important. I'm going to play the skeptic here and focus on the bad. And that is that if there is an increase in funding that we think the IRS so desperately needs, I want to just caution us against expecting that it would have any immediate impact. The IRS has been so underfunded the past decade, it's going to take a lot of time for them to catch up to where they should be. It's going to take years. And the IRS is going to be under pretty intense scrutiny. So I could see those opposed to a big IRS funding bill waiting just long enough to be able to say, oh, there should be an improvement, but not long enough to actually see that improvement. And I hate to keep saying this, but they're only the enforcers. So if Congress continues to write complicated, convoluted tax laws that allow taxpayers legal opportunities to exploit gray areas, it's sort of unfair to ask the IRS to fix a broken tax system. So bottom line, if you're not satisfied with the, with the tax system, it's not the IRS's fault. And this additional funding that they're getting isn't going to fix the tax system. And that leaves us with the ugly, which not too surprisingly, once again, is politics. So B, I imagine some people are going to point to this recent leak of individuals' confidential tax return information as an excuse for why we shouldn't fund the IRS. I think you're right. And again, it, it doesn't make sense to me. It's just like when we were having the tax-exempt entity scandal and President Obama said, let's give them more resources to fix the problem. And the Republican Congress said, no, let's take their resources away. Even if the leak didn't come from inside the IRS, it might be hard to justify giving the IRS access to more private information, like that bank information that we talked about, if they can't demonstrate that they're going to be able to safeguard and keep that information private and, and safe and not be visible to, to whoever wants to see it. But again, I think that this is a little short-sighted and maybe one of the reasons that they aren't able to safeguard it is because they haven't had the budget and the technology to put those safeguards in place. So my question for you, B, is how do you think the IRS should spend this increased budget if they get it? I think a lot of people are going to be clamoring for innovations in technology, and I do think that those are important. But I think the number one thing that they need is personnel. They need experienced, knowledgeable people, and they need to not only be able to recruit those people, but to retain those people. And to get those qualified personnel, they need money. Well, that's all we have time for today. I'm Lisa D. Simone. And I'm Bridget Stomberg. Be sure to join us for more tax nerdery on future episodes of Taxes for the Masses.